So I came across the subject of this episode sort of randomly a few months ago while I was out for a walk and recently went out to retrace my steps. Okay, let's walk over this way and see if we can find it. Okay, here it is. 1110 Southeast Alder. This is it. This is a building just a few blocks from my office, and what caught my eye was the original name of the building carved into a big piece of terracotta over the door. You see, you see those words up there in the, the kind of white part? Can you read that for me? Public Library, East Portland uh, Branch. Yeah, that's right. Great. Oh, yeah, and I brought my kids along with me this time. That is my son Ames. What else do you notice? What else is in front of it? It has plants, uh-huh. and um, the stairs are made out of bricks. Circles yeah. made out of marble. It's terracotta, but you're right. Thanks so much, honey. And that's my daughter, Rowan. This building hasn't been a library since 1962 when it was sold to a commercial developer, and it's now an office building. See the signs up there? Can you read those for me? Uh, Schrimbaugh Center, and so family medicine, some... Since the lamb plus works. Yep, okay, thanks. And while I didn't know the history of this building specifically when I first saw it, I had an idea about it. It looked like a Carnegie library. And after doing a little research, sure enough, it was built in 1911 thanks to a grant from the Carnegie Corporation. In fact, it was one of three public libraries built here in Portland with money from Andrew Carnegie. While these first three libraries wouldn't be completed until 1911, when the money for construction was granted in 1901, it caused a tidal wave of activity both here in Portland and all over the United States, and it continues to shape the public library in America. I promised you something for helping me with this. What did I promise you guys? A donut. A donut. Should we get that later? Yes. Okay. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In this episode, the story of how Andrew Carnegie earned the nickname the patron saint of libraries by funding the building of more than 1,600 libraries in less than 30 years and got the American people to pony up for books. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by Vampires Like It Hot by Lindsay Sands. Vampires are real. Jess would have never believed it until she saw them with her own eyes. She knows she has to get off the island, and her gallant rescuer has offered to help. There's something about Raphael that's unlike any man she has ever met, and his touch sends pleasure through her that is beyond all imagining. But when Jess discovers who he really is, will she risk life as she knows it for a chance of forever by his side? New York Times bestselling author Lindsay Sands brings the heat in this newest Arginot novel as one woman is rescued by an irresistible immortal. A Caribbean paradise is infested by vicious vampire pirates. Jess's only option to escape is to jump into shark-infested water. And luckily, Raphael Note is there to pull her to safety. A perfect paranormal romance for anyone looking to extend the feeling of summer and those who love funny and witty romances. Thanks to Vampires Like It Hot by Lindsay Sands for sponsoring Annotated. When Boston opened up its public library in uh, 18. 18- 54, it kind of initiated a competition among major urban centers to copy the prototype, so to speak. By 1876, when the American Library Association had its first meeting, there were a lot more public libraries opened, and it occasioned the organization of that association. This is Professor Wayne Wiegand, who has spent his entire career writing about American libraries. By the time you get to uh, Andrew Carnegie, and he starts donating in the late 1880s, 
and starts really moving into it the first decade of the 21st century, you had a full-fledged public library movement in which cities and towns welcomed opportunities to manifest their desire to uh, self-educate. Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland in 1835. He immigrated to America in 1848 and would become one of the wealthiest people in American history. He made his fortune in coal and steel, and when he sold his company to J.P. Morgan in 1901, the price was almost $500 million, which would be more than $15 billion today. And he had plans for that money. He wanted to give it all away. Carnegie is different from every other philanthropist because Carnegie is committed to giving away all of his money. And he's committed to doing so because he believes that as an individual, he didn't earn it. He participated in earning it, but that it takes an entire community to generate the kinds of money that went into his bank account. This is Professor David Nassau, author of the authoritative biography of Andrew Carnegie called, well, Andrew Carnegie. He didn't make the steel by himself. There were thousands and thousands who dug the iron ore and dug the coal and burned the coal in ovens into coke so it could be used as a fuel. There were the, all the men on the railroad who brought the raw materials and took away the finished product. So Carnegie was thinking of his giving in just that term, community. Not addressing single problems or locations, but thinking about how to give away billions of dollars to help communities all over America. He was proud of what he did, but he figured that he was the steward of this wealth, the guardian of this wealth, that it didn't belong to him, that it came to him to spend for the greater good of the greater number of people. So that's the foundation for his philanthropy, and it's quite different from that of others. He didn't believe that he was giving a gift to the people. He was giving back the money that belonged to the community. And he had experience in how one institution could have outsized effect for a whole community. While working as a telegram delivery boy as a teenager, Carnegie wanted access to a local subscription library that apprentices were allowed to use free of charge. But because he wasn't formally an apprentice, he was just a kid working, he wasn't eligible to use it for free. Those subscription libraries were of several types. Usually, a number of local community leaders would pool their resources and with the money purchase a collection of books to which they agreed, and then they would all have access to them. One member would function as sort of the librarian and house the collection in his home and generally let people know, you can come to my home to look at this selection of books between 2 and 6 o'clock on a Saturday, something like that. Generally, they were like joint stock companies where individuals pooled their resources and purchased collections and then allowed everyone to have access to those collections. If you had more money invested, you could take out more books per transaction. The library Carnegie wanted access to required him to pay, and he didn't think that was fair. So he started writing letters that were published in the local newspaper about how this was unfair. He said, this is nonsense, you know, that you just restrict this to apprentices. There are lots of us who aren't formal apprentices, but we need this service. And, you know, he didn't let go until they 
let him into that library. But the unfairness was only part of it. It was about access. And not even just access exactly, but that Carnegie knew firsthand that books and reading could change lives because they had changed his. He educated himself. He had like a fifth grade education in Scotland. And everything else he learned, he learned by reading. Carnegie saw this younger version of himself in the millions of working people across the country who didn't have access to the very materials that had helped him advance. And while Americans were starting to realize the importance of a public library, at this point, there just weren't that many. In an 1876 survey, there were only 188 public libraries in the United States, and 124 of those were in Massachusetts alone. The children of his workers and working people across the country needed a facility where they could read the newspapers, where they could read technical journals, where they could read fiction, where they could begin to civilize themselves, educate themselves, and prepare themselves for careers. And so in 1886, Carnegie became the Johnny Appleseed of the American Public Library. Over the next 30 years, he gave away more than $1 billion in today's money for the construction of more than 1,600 public libraries. It was an enormous project, with libraries built in every state and communities of all sizes. But it wasn't just a giveaway. Carnegie had an idea about how to do philanthropy that, as much as the buildings themselves, maybe even more, advanced the cause of the public library in profound ways. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney. Life in real-world Atlanta isn't always simple, as Alice juggles an overprotective mom, a high-maintenance best friend, a slipping GPA, and an ongoing battle against monstrous creatures in the magical dream realm known as Wonderland. When Alice's handsome and mysterious mentor is poisoned, she has to find the antidote by venturing deeper into Wonderland than she's ever gone before. And she'll need to use everything she's learned in both worlds to keep from losing her head, literally. A Blade So Black delivers an irresistible urban fantasy retelling of Alice in Wonderland. But it's not the Wonderland you remember. The Wonderland cast has been reimagined in fun, inventive ways, from a young David Bowie-type Mad Hatter to a narcoleptic potion-brewing bartender as the Caterpillar. Readers of fantasy, action-adventure, and romance will devour this richly layered story set against a dark, lush dream world. Thanks to A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney for sponsoring this episode of Annotated. In the end, he spends what is would be the equivalent of several billion dollars to build 1,689 libraries. Let's work backward from there to get to how this was possible. So that's 1,689 libraries funded over the period of 1886 to 1917, just 31 years. That's over 54 libraries a year, more than one a week. If you have any experience with modern philanthropy or charitable giving, you might expect substantial staff and administration to give out millions and millions of dollars all over the U.S. But really, it only took a handful of people, led by one of Carnegie's secretaries, Joseph Bertram, to run the program. And they could do it so quickly over such a wide range of locations, because the rules for getting money for your library from Carnegie were really simple. It was, you know, they spent billions of dollars, but it was a small, streamlined operation. Requests would come in, they'd send out a questionnaire, they'd say, when you can answer these questions effectively, we'll consider your application. 
there were only three things that a community needed to be eligible to get money for a library. First, a plot of land, either bought by the city or donated to the city, but it had to be owned and controlled by the city. This was usually the easiest thing to get. Second, you needed an accurate population count because grants were given according to a simple formula. $2 in construction money for every citizen of the community. Usually this was pretty straightforward, but not always. Bertram would go to the census data and said, wait a minute, you're building a library for 220,000 people and there are only 40,000 people in your city. So we're not going to give you that big a library. Other groups, I think Philadelphia was one. Philadelphia didn't ask for enough money. So Bertram and Carnegie got back to him and they said, no, you know, you need more money. You need more branches. The third requirement was the most difficult to meet. And even more than the library building itself, it was the core of Carnegie's strategy. The final hurdle a community needed to clear was to commit to funding the library's operation. Bertram and Carnegie required that a community agree to an annual expenditure in support of the library equivalent to 10% of the library's construction costs. So if your town of 30,000 people got a building grant of $60,000, you had to agree to pony up $6,000 a year to run it. Carnegie's money was only for construction costs. It didn't include books, furniture, staffing, maintenance, heat, none of the ongoing expenses. This was the sneaky genius of Carnegie's plan. He knew that no philanthropy could fund the operation of public libraries all over the country in perpetuity. Only government money in the form of community support could do that. The buildings themselves were sort of Trojan horses for the more important effect of getting Americans used to the idea of funding libraries with public money. Look, he knew, again, that he wanted to be a change agent. And he was going to use his money as a lever, you know, as a bribe. And he, he, was, he and Bertram were quite clear about that. That's what they were doing. They were going to force people to do the right thing. Because in most places in the United States at this point, there weren't laws on the books that would allow cities and counties to levy dedicated taxes to run these libraries which made passing laws a necessary condition of getting Carnegie money. For example, for Louisville to get a Carnegie library, the Kentucky State Legislature had to pass a law allowing the city to tax itself for the 10% maintenance requirement. A similar law had to be passed in Ohio, but was challenged under existing precedents and finally ended up with the Ohio Supreme Court. Similar processes had to happen in Utah, Pennsylvania, Texas. The legal gears started grinding in city halls and state legislatures from coast to coast because people wanted libraries and saw Carnegie as a chance to catch up. By the time you get to uh, Andrew Carnegie, and he starts donating in the late 1880s and starts really moving into it the first decade of the 20th century, you had a full-fledged public library movement in which cities and towns, small towns, welcomed opportunities to manifest their desire to uh, self-educate, so to speak, in uh, soliciting Carnegie grants. And cities and towns without a public library were kind of embarrassed if they didn't have one. So while Andrew Carnegie and his money didn't start the push for widespread public libraries, it was part of a virtuous circle. People wanted libraries. Carnegie incentivized them to commit dollars by providing the structures themselves. Communities had to create the legal and political structure for ongoing funding, which then made opening and funding libraries easier still. And then libraries became a new and socially acceptable recipient of philanthropy. During the height of the Carnegie Library building from 1900 to 1906, 
There are more than 3,000 other individual contributions to libraries worth more than $24 million themselves. And that's more than Carnegie spent over the same period. There was so much money flowing into funding local libraries, in fact, that a couple of strange things happened. First, towns didn't know how to build libraries, and architects didn't have much experience doing it. There were so many towns that applied for Carnegie grants, got them, and then said to themselves, well, we've never built a library before. So they wrote back to Carnegie uh, and his minions and said, no, could you give us suggestions? Out of all of that correspondence came a series of six library designs. Joseph Bertram put together these six basic blueprints that libraries could use, and use them they did. And they were geared to large towns, medium-sized towns, small towns, that kind of thing. And the amount of money Carnegie would give to each of these cities and towns. Those explain why the Carnegie buildings look so alike. So every time you go into small-town America, you hit Main Street, you drive down Main Street, you look at this building and you say, oh, that's the library. That's a reason. Aesthetically, the Carnegie libraries are still recognizable, but they also had a feature unusual in libraries to that time, a feature that remains and is increasingly important in modern libraries. Within those six buildings, however, every one of the architectural designs included a community center. That's what distinguishes what explains Carnegie Library influence on the present. If you look at the modern libraries that have been built in the last 10, 20 years, each of them has additional space designed into the building for community activities. Now, you can't look at the subscription library history I explained before and see that in those buildings. So the Carnegie Library explains why the library as place has become a uh, community center. I think that's its most significant contribution to the present. The supply constraint on library architects was a problem, but it wasn't nearly as bad as another shortage all these new libraries caused, that on librarians themselves. In 1915, the Carnegie Corporation hired Alvin Johnson, an economics professor at Cornell, to tour the country and assess how well the Carnegie libraries were doing. Johnson's report was both good and bad. He affirmed that community libraries were a social good and, in most cases, operating as expected. But he also found that the explosive growth in libraries had exposed a major weakness. The United States was not producing enough trained librarians, and the ones it was producing weren't trained enough. In 1916, there were only 13 schools offering library science degrees, and most of these programs were only for one year and only required a high school diploma for entrance. Johnson found that most of the libraries were good buildings with eager patrons, but little usable staffing. American schools were only producing a couple hundred certified librarians a year for what were now thousands of new libraries. And even those certified librarians weren't prepared to serve their communities well. Johnson thought the problem so acute that he recommended that the Carnegie Corporation cease funding the construction project and turn its library giving exclusively toward library education and further library services. Joseph Bertram was outraged, and he ordered all copies of Johnson's report destroyed. But apparently not all were destroyed, because Bertram did present a version of the report to the board of the Carnegie Corporation, though Johnson would later claim it was a much-altered version of the original. And while Bertram was angry to see that Johnson called the mission of the library program into question, ultimately he would come to agree. The library construction program would come to an end. 
On November 7, 1917, the Carnegie Corporation resolved to close to new library applications. But its goal of supporting American libraries continued. Over the next 50 years, the Carnegie Corporation gave more than $33 million to improve library services, almost as much as it had given for building the libraries themselves. And today, there are more than 50 library science programs certified by the American Library Association. Many of them have, and still do, receive funding from the Carnegie Corporation. Now, every year, more than 5,000 library science degrees are awarded, and there are more than 150,000 librarians employed in the U.S. The Carnegie Grant certainly did accelerate the public library movement. There's no question about that. Town after town that got Carnegie Grants would brag about how they were now culturally centered, so to speak. I think that most American cities and towns would have public libraries in the year 2018, but they'd be of a different nature. The Carnegie influence is so hard to see now, in part because the American idea of what a public library is, is built on what a Carnegie library was. There is no holy book in which God tells us what a library should be. Andrew Carnegie's hands-off attitude gave people in local communities the power to define the contours of their public library services. Usual for a civic institution. This hands-off approach about how each library would run itself wasn't an accident. Carnegie wanted the local communities to figure it out. From the books on the shelves to the operating budget, Carnegie believed that the library would only flourish if communities took control. So what, what are the community needs of the local population? Design a library around those community needs. It's a matter of the community identifying its needs and seeing where the library fits into meeting those needs. That's where I'd spend the billion dollars. And those needs are going to be different one community from another. Remember, God didn't tell us what a library should be. Local communities define that. In 1895, there were just under 2,000 public libraries in the United States, and a couple hundred of those were the first Carnegie libraries. By 1923, Six years after the last Carnegie grants were given, there were more than 7,000. America had undergone a public library revolution. And today, there are more than 17,000 public libraries operating in the U.S., and more than 800 of those are original Carnegie libraries. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill with special production assistance by Jeremy Desmond. Special thanks to Professor David Nassau. His authoritative biography of Andrew Carnegie is called Andrew Carnegie. Thanks also to Professor Wayne Wiegand. For those of you interested in the history of libraries in America, his book, A Part of Our Lives, A People's History of the American Public Library, is a fascinating overview from colonial days to the present. Like we said, there are still hundreds of operating Carnegie libraries all over the country, and we thank one of them, the North Portland branch of the Multnomah County Library System. If you have a minute, we would love it if you could rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts. Takes just a minute and helps new listeners find the show. Okay, one last thing. If you are on Twitter and or Instagram, you can follow Annotated there. I'm going to post something book nerdy every day from October 1 through January 1 as an experiment. Also, I like to do this stuff. On Twitter, we are annotated underscore FM. That's the underscore symbol, not the word underscore in case you're confused. And on Instagram, just annotated FM. No spaces or underscores or anything. 
Links to both, probably the easiest way, are in the show notes. Until next month, read something great. <laughs>